Good afternoon and welcome to this conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. And this week we're going to talk about parenting and the information that we receive as a culture about what it is to parent and to raise children seems to be straightforward. There seems to be a cultural understanding of what children need and how to best parent. And of course, there is no lack of books and information that exists to give people the guidance they need to raise children. But what if the cultural story or narrative that we have around raising children isn't really in the best interest of the children or babies themselves and the parents that are doing the work of raising their children. I I wonder what happens if that story we've been told about what is best isn't right. How do we make a switch? And I know that when I was a baby, my mother followed Dr. Spock. Uh, that was the um, expert at the time. And so all of the things that she did to calm a colicky baby or to introduce solid food all fell in line with Dr. Spock's information. And by the time I became a mother, Dr. Spock had fallen out of fashion and a lot of his work was deemed probably not helpful and in some ways harmful. And so my parenting experience was what to expect when you're expecting and then what to expect in that first year and the second year. And it felt like it was an improvement and growth over Dr. Spock's kind of primitive and very non-baby centric way of raising children. So it felt like we were bringing a more nurturing style of parenting into the way we raised our children. So here I am now a grandmother. I have an eight-year-old granddaughter and my three-year-old grandson, and I've been able to witness and be a part of my daughter's journey as a parent and watching her follow the influencers that now come at her on Instagram with everyone having their own expertise and information of the best way to raise children and how to you know sleep train them or how to introduce a solid food. So each generation of mothers that I've experienced have had a completely different set of experts guiding them through the process of parenting. One thing that has been controversial along all of the decades or all of the generations of parenting is how to get babies to sleep and what is the best way to help them get a full night's sleep so mom and dad or parents and caregivers can also get a full night's rest. And so my guest today is Dr. Darsha Narvaez, and she is the author of The Evolved Nest, also a professor emerita of the psychology department for the University of Notre Dame. And she contacted me after a wonderful conversation that we had last year about the evolvedness and about uh, the kinship worldview and the shifting lens about how we as human beings go about our lives and that it's so important that we have a shift in how we go about living our lives and making connections and building family, because what we have been living for so long is unsustainable and has created a lot of isolation and loneliness and depression and anxiety. And so Dr. Narvaez reached out and said, you know what, we need to have a conversation about babies and caregiving of babies. And part of that is the sleep training of babies and whether or not that is healthy for them and how our work as parents in raising our babies influences them as adults. So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to deep dive into this idea of the new generation of parenting 
and being a human being and creating families and how we can evolve our practices into a more evolved nest way. So this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and you can be a part of the conversation after the show by sending me an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You can leave me a message there, find out information about the shows. You can also podcast our show by finding wherever it is you get your podcast, a conversation with the reluctant therapist, hit subscribe, leave a review, and our show will be there. And then you can also follow the show by visiting kcbx.org, look under the News Talk tab, and 10 years of shows are there for you to peruse through. And also my first interview and conversation with Dr. Narvaez is also available at kcbx.org. So we're gonna take a quick break and come back and start our conversation. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. The girl stood on the rocks with the water at her feet And the sun on her skin and a tear on her cheek With her hand at her chest and the wind in her hair Underneath her breath like a beggar's prayer She said, I miss you, come back to me I wish you'd come back to me But nobody heard And the world turned And the world turned And the world turned You're listening to a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. And welcome, Dr. Darsha Narvaez, to the show. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be with you again. It is nice to see you. And just for uh, those who didn't get to meet you the first time, Dr. Narvaez is a professor emerita of for the psychology department at the University of Notre Dame, and is also the host of Evolved Nest, um, part of the book that you wrote, The Evolved Nest. But I also met you uh, originally because of the book that you co-authored with Four Arrows about the kinship worldview, which is another fascinating uh, book to dive into. But today we're gonna focus on The Evolved Nest. And before we jump in, Dr. Narvaez, I'd love you to talk about how you came to writing this book. What, what was your journey to doing this work? Well, it's been a lifelong journey, actually, because my earliest memory is about injustice towards a young child. And I spent half my childhood outside the States and in places where kids my age were poor and selling gum on the street corners and things, and then coming back to the States We'd be away for a year and then come back for two. Coming back to the States and seeing the overwhelming materialism and even wastefulness, and I could not understand what was wrong with the world. So <laughs> I've been plagued with that question from the beginning. <laughs> and, and it took me a while to get there. I had uh, various careers, including uh, being a music major in college. But I finally found the area of moral development research and that's what I then I studied in in my doctorate work, got a PhD. And uh, the, at the time, the focus was on reasoning, you know, and how reasoning matters for morality. Uh, and I, over time, read more widely and found Hunter-Gatherer Childhoods, a book by anthropologists showing that we have this common way of raising the young all over the world. Maybe, hmm, maybe it matters because the modern world isn't following that millions year old wisdom. Uh, and I found neuroscience, interpersonal neuroscience, Alan Shore and mammalian effective neuroscience, Jakob Panksepp's work and started to put it all together. 
and realize that morality really is from the bottom up, from the neurobiology that's constructed in early life. And that's where the evolved nest comes in. That's what we call it now, that um, framing, that provision of care that our species evolved over millions of years and share with other animals too, uh, to optimize normal development. It matches up with the maturational schedule of the young. And so then the systems all get set up properly. And it has to do with developing a compassionate morality as well. So that's my area is trying to see how well-being from early on then leads us to our human nature to be cooperative and part of the earth community, the bio community, the biosphere, which because we've undermined the evolved nest, we feel very disconnected and, you know, out to lunch and not, and not uh, you know, kind of almost abandoning our relational uh, attunement to the earth. When you talk about moral development, then it's more of a way to live cooperatively, cooperatively as human beings and a species among many species and not what I think of moral development is it's not right to steal bread. It's, it feels like it's much larger than the moral lessons that we teach today, which seem to just be around uh, civilized behavior. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Around rules, right. That adults tell you to follow. And if you don't, you get spanked until you learn to follow them. Yeah. That's sort of Western European inheritance we have that that's, you know, again, it's back to reasoning. You got to, you know, teach some rules that are kind of abstract, not experienced. Uh, and then that's, if you follow them, uh, you're a good person. Uh, but that's, yeah. So I follow more of a virtue orientation, which is a virtue. It means that you are coordinated in your gut, your heart, your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts, and your actions are all tuned up in one way to be cooperative and life enhancing of the other. And that's our indigenous wisdom. Our indigenous heritage is that kind of morality where you're part of this huge community. Yes, your your family community, right? And your neighborhood and and local community, but also the planetary community. And you have a sense of of knowing that you're related. You always know this because you built it up from, from early experience being in the evolved nest conditions. This might feel like an obvious question, but how does the evolved nest differ from, I don't know what the alternative is, just nest? Or, you know, what is, what is the counter to the evolved nest? Well, the evolved nest is a set of, of um, practices that keep, uh, if we just look at in early life, keep the young child feeling connected and supported so that their biochemistry and all their systems are growing properly because they feel safe and, and secure. Um, the evolved nest is actually for all of us throughout life, except mm-hmm. for the first couple of um, provisions that are, you know, soothing birth, perinatal experiences and breastfeeding. We don't need all those throughout life, but we need all the rest of them throughout life. Uh, and the alternative is sort of this haphazard, accidental, you know, oh, follow this advice or this, look at this one study that showed us this one little thing because we controlled everything else and we didn't look at anything else. And look, it's okay to sleep train because I found this one thing. (laughs) We didn't know what the parents did. Really, we told them to sleep train this way, but five years later, you know, we didn't find any difference between the group that we didn't talk to and the group we told to do something. And yeah, look, everyone can sleep train. It's safe. That's very unethical. 
uh, research that's out there and pediatricians give the advice to their their uh, the patients based on reading the abstract from a study in a, in one of their journals because they don't know how to, uh, they don't have time to look at the real article or have any baselines for what's normal. What's our species normal way of raising the young? That's what the Evolved Nest is about. And so that would lead me to think that at some point we felt it was necessary to write books about parenting because we lost that inherent understanding, that deeper understanding of what children need. And when did that occur? Uh, well, it's degenerated over millennia, but in particular, um, in the last few hundred years and the last hundred years, uh, partially because immigrants come without their elder, wise elders to accompany them. And new time parents are notoriously poor at being parents. They need the elders to help them because otherwise, I mean, because they're focused on their work or whatever else, their identity development. And the elders know much better from experience. And also they're more tuned in to the young, especially babies. Uh, and we lost those, you know, the extended family um, conditions in the last few hundred years. And so people come and they don't know what to do. And so they, they were feeding babies oatmeal, for example, some of the immigrants over the last turn of the century. Uh, and that started the American Academy of Pediatrics who tried to come up with scientific formulas, right? And and so you better listen to the men of science. They know better than mothers. Well, you know, naive new mothers, you know, don't know that much often because they haven't been raised with babies and know what they need and haven't observed very much, had much experience. And so it's been this shift away from developing the know-how that mothers would otherwise have and our cousins, our ancestors had. Uh, you know, the Continuum Concept by Jean Leadloff, published in the 70s, was about her experiences in the Amazon from the 50s. Uh, she finally wrote it up. But she couldn't tell these Amazonian, very happy, very supportive, nested people that back home in the States, mothers had to read books to learn how to, how to parent. She was too embarrassed about that. They would have been uh, <laughs> horrified, you know. <laughs> I think about that with my mom and the whole Dr. Spock thing is like, why is it that the book became more of an expert than her own mom? Like, how did we lose that connection to our, I understand like the moving away from extended family, but even those who lived near their extended family started to reject the parental wisdom or the elder wisdom. Yeah, part of that is uh, we moved, well, because the men of science know better, you know, all this stuff that, that was part of the culture, but also we moved to hospital births, and then hospital births, they're tra traumatizing, period. <laughs> I don't know any uh, medicalized birth that's not traumatizing, because they're manipulating everything. They're not letting the natural processes occur, and so then that gets all the endocrine systems that are ready to help mom and baby uh, go through the birth process that gets all messed up and then you got to have more painkillers and then the baby is so stressed out when they're and they're then they're separated from the mother so mom and baby never get to calm down because their their bodies are ready to meld onto each other and to calm each other down right after birth in that magic hour uh, but no, hospitals know better, you know, men, men of science know better. And, and, and so we're still stuck in that cycle of having robbed the wisdom 
we burned a lot of witches and a lot of elders, you know, over the last few centuries too. Uh, so we lost a lot of wisdom that our ancestors just took for granted. If you're just tuning in, my guest today is Dr. Darsha Narvaez, Professor Emerita of Psychology for the University of Notre Dame and the host of Evolve Nest and author of the Evolve Nest. And we're talking today about that separation between natural ancient wisdom about child rearing and family creation to moving or finding our way back. And it's it's so disheartening because I feel like in some ways we're moving further away from our natural instincts. Just looking at my daughter's cohort, um, she was considered an outlier because she birthed naturally and the hospital was reticent to allow her to birth naturally in the birthing room. And, and the students that I teach when, you know, I, I talk about childbirth and the industry of birthing and across the board, my students are terrified to have children because of the narrative around childbirth. How do we repair that? Oh my goodness! Yeah, they watch too much TV and Instagram <laughs> feeds, even oh. TikTok feeds. Oh yeah, and you know, most—I don't think many obstetricians have ever seen a natural birth. They've never experienced it. They don't learn it in in medical school, right? How to support that? Uh, so. Fear is one of the things that makes birthing difficult, right? That's what you don't want to do to a, a mother who's uh, giving birth. You want to keep her in a state of, you know, relaxation and even uh, some argue orgasmic yeah. <laughs> uh, the, uh, impulse will help the baby come out more quickly. <laughs> and I've had mothers in my classes come and say, boy, I'd love to give birth every year. It was ecstatic mm. because... Well, under natural conditions, when you're in, you're in good health, right? Uh, birth could be just amazing. It's, uh, you know, all the hormones are there to give you a, a you know, real high. Uh, but we've done everything we can. And part of it's patriarchy, um, you know, male control um, for the last millennia uh, that don't want to put mothers first. They don't want to put children first. They don't want to put nurturing first. And that's where we need to return to. So another obvious question to kind of focused in on focusing on how we find our way back to the indigenous way of rearing children. What is considered a, a baby in our human lifespan? Like what is the baby term? Well, the way I uh, talk about babies is it's zero to three. Okay. It depends on the child. You know, boys uh, mature more slowly. They have less built-in resilience. And so they need a lot more support than girls. Uh, they need more of the nest, more play, more affection, more breastfeeding, uh, you know, less trauma all, all the way around for longer. And then they're going to be as compassionate, uh, you know, uh, human beings as there can be. What we do to undermine all that and we give them less care and so they end up being stuck in the the pre-human survival systems as a way to work in the world so you if you don't grow the you know relational attunement the flexibility that comes with nestedness where you have a lot of different people that you attach to and that you play with 
uh, and you learn all these things even before language, a lot of this stuff builds. Uh, if you don't have that, you're going to be stuck with uh, relying on fear and panic and rage systems that are there that get enhanced from being uh, distressed a lot. If you're left alone or left to cry, which we do routinely, you're going to then have this more, much more anxious, easily triggered um, personality. Uh, and that's going to actually take away your free will because when the stress response kicks in, it sh shifts the blood flow to your muscles so you can fight or flight, you know, and, and you can't think very well. You can't, you're not going to be open-minded or open-hearted or flexible. You're going to want to latch onto some script that's going to get you out of this situation that maybe has worked in the past or your ancestral pre-human past. And so you end up with uh, a lot of damaging people wounded people who are damaging. So zero to three feels like a long time to define baby. And I would imagine in our culture, we allow baby to be maybe six months or a year, and then they're considered a toddler. So that seems like if you were to say to someone, you need to nurture this baby as a baby till they're three, for a lot of people, I would imagine that would feel outrageous because they're getting their kids into preschool, right? And separated now by the time they're 18 months right. or two. So what happens in those zero to three that, that creates the baby state for so long? And how do we build in that time? Yeah. So the brain development is, is happening so rapidly in those first years. Uh, we're born with a, a full-term birth, which used to be 40 to 42 weeks. Now, full-term birth is considered 37 weeks, which is like premature, you know, in the old days. Um, uh, so, you know, again, this is medicalized birth coming in and deciding, you know, when the due date is. But babies vary by about 55 days in the womb, how long they stay. Wow. Due Thank dates you. are guesses. <laughs> I had no idea. So we're born with, uh, at full-term birth, 25% of adult brain volume. Okay. which means there's a ton left to go. And we look like fetuses of other animals until about 18 months of age because the brain, for example, the brain plates do not fuse and solidify because they're expecting a lot of brain growth to happen. And it does, you know, doubling in that first year at least. And how does it double? It doubles from the evolved nest. Kids who are neglected, who aren't touched very much, who aren't responded to, have much smaller brains. They just don't grow. Um, so touch and breastfeeding and such. Um, so what's growing? Well, neuronal connections primarily, and then the setting, the setting up parameters and thresholds for various systems like the stress response, oxytocin system, the vagus nerve, which is related to all the major systems of the body. All these things are being tuned up by the caregivers. The caregivers need to be there to co-regulate the child. They don't have self-regulation capacities for a very long time, and they need someone to train up their body to do it, to do it well. So if you leave a baby to cry, you're tuning them into, you're, you're expanding their parameters for personality. They're going to scream more because they have practiced it a lot in babyhood, and their stress response will be much more easily triggered because you let it... Um, get practiced and, and activated. Uh, so uh, let me say one more thing about birth, though. Um, there was a study done by uh, UNESCO, I think, um, back in the 50s, where they compared hospital births um, of babies with those uh, born at home in Uganda. And what they found was 
The hospital birth babies act just like the European and American birth hospital babies, where they would be born and then they would sleep most of the time for two months. And then when they're awake, they cry. The, the home birth babies, on the other hand, day two, they're awake and they're smiling. They're smiling. In hospital birth babies, they don't smile till two or three months later. And there's no crying in these home birth babies. And they're looking and following their mother around the room. It's just amazing. They can sit up straight. We have lost baseline. Why is that uh, different? Well, because of all the trauma that uh, hospital births do. They interfere and they give all the drugs. The baby is all drugged up and they don't have the capacity to, to release the drugs because their kidneys and livers don't work for weeks. And so you've got a drug baby. They can't breastfeed because they're just too sleepy uh, and so on. So we've forgotten our, we, our baselines for what's normal, for what's good, appropriate, have shifted across the board for raising children and babies. So if we're talking about a baby being a baby until three, I get the infant for even to 18 months. But what are the baby features from like 18 months to three years? What is, if you were to, if you were to approach your baby as a baby until three, how would that change how you behave around that child? You know what I'm saying? Like what would yeah. be between how you treat a toddler to know you're a baby until you're three years old? What would be different? Right. So here's one thing. Uh, babies or mobile babies have an inner engine to learn and to move and touch and explore and you need to stand back and let them do that. So that means you have to put them in environments where they can do that. Because if you start saying no or spanking them or whatever, you're now shutting down their self-confidence and their motivation to learn. And I mean, we do this all the time <laughs> in the modern world, right? Because we think we know better than the baby. The baby has an inner compass about how to grow best. It's millions of years old. And now we think that with our little ideas, you know, that we made up, <laughs> we know better. <laughs> it feels like so much of it too is forcing everyone to adapt to an industrialized yeah. system is that once we had nine to five jobs and these parameters of how a day had to go, then babies, children had to adapt to that system. There was no longer right a freedom. That's of right. Because we we are 99% of our history was spent in nomadic foraging bands. So groups of five to 50, they move with the animals or uh, the uh, blossoming of fruit or the fruiting of trees and plants. And uh, they are, you know, not rigidly controlled by anything right. uh, except the sun, <laughs> maybe, and the moon, <laughs> animal, whatever presence. But otherwise, there's a lot of freedom. And so that's our heritage. We have an instinct for freedom, right? We have an instinct to be uh, mobile. Uh, and we, um, you know, have to suppress it in civilization. Civilization has been doing that for millennia to try to control everybody. And it very, it's very helpful to undermine early development, uh, the Nazi training child manuals suggested this. You want to break the child's will before age three because they won't remember, you know, how they got broken, but mm -hmm. they'll be forever uh, conformist and obedient to authority and just shut themselves down because they had such distress and trauma early on. It's terrifying. 
If you're just tuning in, my guest today is Dr. Darshan Narvaez, Professor Emerita of Psychology for the University of Notre Dame and the host and author of The Evolved Nest. And we're talking about the shifts that were made uh, in family life and the shifts that we need to make to come back to a wholeness for human beings. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue this conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and you're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. tuning in. You're listening to a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett with my guest today, Dr. Darshan Narvaez. All right, Dr. Narvaez, we're going to jump into kind of this proper development or child rearing from the evolved nest lens. What is the parent or caregiver's role in caring for their baby? Yes. So caregivers are very important and that means multiple caregivers. So this is not just mom and mom and dad. It's the allo parents, other mothers, uh, allo mothers, uh, neighbors, kin, non-kin who are there to meet the needs of that baby. Babies needs need to be met immediately because they're like uh, fetuses until the 18 months. So they are expecting the same kind of ex experience that they had in the womb where they were hungry and the food was there, they needed oxygen, it was there, it was there, it was there. Because they're growing so quickly, if you distress the baby by not meeting their needs immediately, which you learn by following their signals, um, if you distress them, they will then uh, move into a non-growth state and they will, uh, you know, DNA synthesis slows down. Uh, various systems, you know, maybe they're in a sensitive period of growth at that moment, and then you're undermining it in some fashion. So you want to learn to follow the signals of a child, and their signals are going to be first, you know, like the face will start to scrunch up, and the body will start to barely wiggle, and then they'll start to gesture, you know, and then they'll start to get, you can see they're uncomfortable. And if no one's paying attention, then they have to cry. That's a late signal for needs. So you want to move in before that. You want to get sensitive, of course, so that they're maintaining an optimal aroused condition so that growth keeps going in the way that it's supposed to. At Every baby's different as to what system is under development at that moment. So you, every, you know, nature and nurture can't be separated because every few minutes it's a different baby. <laughs> so that's where the evolved nest of providing ex extensive affectionate touch all the time and self-directed play with others and multiple caregivers that are who are responsive to the needs of the child, a welcoming climate so the baby feels like they matter and they belong. Uh, all these kinds of things are then going to help 
shape that baby into a cooperative community member? My first thought is how differently I might have parented had I thought of my girls as fetuses until they were 18 months. It would have been, I would have just wrapped them up and warned them 24 seven. I mean, that just it almost makes me cry hearing you say that because I want to do over, like I want to go back and get to wrap them up. Um, and, and I think from 18 months on things got better, but that first 18 months, definitely I missed that. And it makes me sad. And also we have such a focus in our culture on just the parents doing this on their own, even through the child birthing process, you know, they very rarely have families get to come in and be part of the process. I felt so fortunate because my husband and I were there for both of our grandchildren's birth, it was more of a community experience. And so my daughter was more calm. My son-in-law was more calm because we were there and had been there. But so often people want it to be isolated and then they're home isolated. How do we shift that? How do how do we shift that idea? And what does it look like to have multiple caregivers in a society where everyone's living solo? Yeah, so it's a big challenge. Uh, I recommend that parents find other families to be partners with mm-hmm. and you know if you can live nearby each other and then pitch in you know you pitch in and help out whenever uh, needed and you share child raising or making meals or la- doing laundry or whatever and you shift from house to house um for birth uh yeah we we need to really help the home birth movement and doulas and midwives to get back in their uh, honored place they used to have uh, before male medical doctors came in and wanted to do it better or, you know, (laughs) scientifically. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to change here. And um, I think what we want to, to say, though, is to encourage mothers and future parents to follow their instincts and to get a wise elder who's compassionate about mother and child to be their advisor. Yeah, having that extra person in the room. So how do, because now I'm feeling mother guilt, how do these early experiences in life change or how does it impact babies in the long term if they've missed out on that nested babiness? What what did I do wrong in the long haul? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I don't mean. You know, we're always learning. You know about what we should do better, right? So we have to forgive ourselves, and we have to then try to help others know the information, which is, of course, what I'm about: public education. Yes. Uh, so, what things uh, in terms of physiology uh, in early life, you're setting up the caregivers are co-regulating the child's stress response. So if you leave them to in distress, their stress response will, will be more easily triggered for the rest of life, likely. So in, in rat studies, there's a 10-day period in early life, which is, they only live for 50 days, but the first 10 days is a very sensitive period for turning on all sorts of genes. And um, <clears throat> it's unclear how long that lasts for us. Um, when I asked the researcher, Michael Meany, he said six months. But when I calculate 50 days for how long we live, it's like 14 years. So I actually think there are other sensitive periods to be aware of. The early adolescence, I used to be a middle school teacher, so I know too, uh, that this is a time when the brain is deconstructing itself and reconstructing itself. So it's a good time to move in. 
So stress response system, the immune system is also set up in early life. Uh, the ratio of T cells, the endocrine system, the oxytocin system, for example, the neurotransmitters, how many you have, how well they function. So it's going to be affect your intelligence. Uh, the corpus callosum, the, which unifies the two halves of the brain, is uh, much thinner in, in neglected boys, for example. And that means they're going to flip into states because they're not coordinating across brain regions as much. And would and ADHD be a result of that, maybe? I don't know enough. I don't, perhaps, uh, I don't know enough to say that. Uh, but there are going to be lesions or gaps in brain development because things were not developed that were supposed to develop if they're in distress, right? And if you leave a baby to cry uh, for very long, cortisol is released and it starts to melt the connections between neurons. So it's actually undermined. You can see brains that have just gaps in them, uh, in depressed brains, for example, uh, so there's those are possible long-term effects. The psychologically, it's going to be a matter of feeling untrusting mm -hmm. towards the the baby's own instincts or intuitions or feelings. It's like, oh, they're not working. I'm not going to pay attention to them anymore, you know. And you know, the trust in the parents, in the caregivers, in relationships. Oh, they're not very reliable. I better not count on them. Or uh, and or uh, trust in the world generally. It's not a very safe place. I better shut down, you know, and be be withdrawn and dissociate and not feel anything, right? So those are all psychological things that can happen and undermining self worth. So we have massive self esteem issues uh, mm -hmm. in this country. When the Dalai Lama first arrived, he said, "What's wrong with everybody?" <laughs> so. It, there's a lot of things. Competence, you know, when a baby in a natural birth condition, baby on the on the belly of the mother will crawl up and uh, start the milk by uh, squeezing the nipple, the milk let down. Wow, talk about competence, a sense of birth and confidence. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we kind of undermine it in so many different little ways. So kind of you keep coming back to the idea of not having needs met when the baby's crying or in distress. And so how does that connect to sleep training, which seems to be one of the big controversial topics? How often do parents need to respond to a crying baby and how does that lead to sleep training? Or what does sleep training have to do with that? Yeah. So sleep training usually refers to crying it out, which is extinction method, where you leave a baby to cry until they just stop crying, and then you assume they're fine. Uh, or it means uh, kind of controlled crying, a kind of a slow or graduated extinction, where you you wait longer and longer to come back to respond to the child, letting them cry longer and longer periods, and hopes, of course, that they stop crying. Now, just because they stop crying doesn't mean that you've trained them anything. You've trained them to shut down, right? Because if they don't shut down after extensive crying, they could die. They're going to use up all their energy. Mm -hmm. So they're after all the sympathetic system is going, oh. the, the parasympathetic says, oh, you better stop that. You know, stop, stop, stop. And you get quiet, but your cortisol levels will still be high mm -hmm. and you'll still feel very distressed. You're just not telling anybody. So what it's really teaching, I think, is it's teaching babies not to expect your help. They're te teaching that you are unreliable, that their needs don't matter. And, you know, it's better to shut down growth to survive 
and dissociate because the world's pretty scary. So you've now shaped their personality to be withdrawn or angry if you do finally show up when they're crying. You know, oh, I'm going to just scream and oh, somebody come, finally comes. Oh, they're going to be a disruptor then. <laughs> right? That's the personality you are now <laughs> rewarding. So a lot of, uh, I've, I've heard from, uh, uh, well, I could say a bunch of things, but um, one of the nannies reported that, that even though she recommends, this is one of the TV nannies, recommends uh, sleep training, she'd never do it to her kids. <laughs> Interesting. what when did we start the cry it out method when did this become a, a teaching or a parental pathway well, I think it's been around for a while and it has religious roots because the idea that children are born in sin, that they carry original sin means, uh, I mean, Augustine was disgusted in when he, in his uh, Confessions book called Confessions, talks about his own, this is in the year 400, uh, uh, says, oh, when I was a baby, I wanted my mother's breasts so badly. What a sinner, you know? <laughs> So this idea that babies want too much, again, because they're fetuses, like fetuses, the people, you know, didn't think about that in the patriarchal society. Uh, and so it's been around a while in the, in the child raising books. Uh, Emmett Holt in the 1800s had, I don't know, 35 editions of his, his book, religiously grounded. Again, it's controlling the baby and, uh, you know, showing them who's in charge Uh, and of course, you're breaking their spirit and uh, forever after they are not going to be themselves because they have to, you know, somehow, you know, put up the defenses and, you know, shut down their heart and their intuitions and and just survive. Uh, the Native Americans were appalled by the uh, Jesuits who come, come in and they want to spank a child for whatever beat the child. And the adults are going, no, no, let me spank me. You know, this is this is insane. Because they know that if you break the spirit of a child, you've now wounded that person for life. You have now left them vulnerable to all sorts of, you know, ridiculous ideologies or uh, just unable to be a, a true, uh, their true selves. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist, and my guest today is Dr. Darsha Narvaez, author of The Evolved Nest and Professor Emerita of Psychology for the University of Notre Dame. And we're talking about babies and what is that period of babyhood and how do we better prepare uh, for future adults in how we're doing our child rearing. So we've got the cry it out methods that... I was introduced to, and my daughter was encouraged to use. And I guess I have two questions about this. Given that our society is so complex and we're asking, you know, parents to go back to work after six weeks or 12 weeks and the need for getting sleep to function as a parent, what are the alternatives or how, how do we adapt, given that we probably can't move into an indigenous right worldview overnight, how do we alleviate the guilt and anxiety that mothers feel in that situation? What are, what are the alternatives? Yes, this is a big uh, issue for people in the States where there's no paid parental leave, essentially. So um, ideally, you'd have a paid leave for a year, two years, three years, so that you can actually 
uh, do all these things without any worry about working. Mm. So I recommend, and this is a tough one, right, to want less, to have a parent, one parent stay home. I mean, this is a three-year period, really critical for the rest of that person's life and your life, because the early investment and sacrifice is going to pay off for the rest of both of your lives. Mm -hmm. And if you don't uh, invest uh, and sacrifice in those first three years, then you're going to, you know, be the snowplow parent or the whatever helicopter uh, of an adolescent or college students or whatever it is because they can't manage they've you've just you know left them into being a puppet more of a puppet they need other people to to run their lives almost so um yeah so i would recommend that someone stay home uh, not work during those three years or share a job or if you if you're wealthy, a nanny, of course, but then you want to keep the nanny around for, you know, 10 years because that child's going to, you know, have an attachment to that nanny. You don't want to break it uh, at sensitive times. And it's probably 12 years, really. Right. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yes, I know. This is all unbelievable. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Well, how do we get back to being our, you know, true uh, raising our true human nature? Yes. And yeah, uh, so that's the kind of thing I write about and, and talk about all the time in terms of what that looks like. In terms of the solutions, that's where we have to all put our heads together and figure out how to counter the mega machine that's controlling all our lives, capitalism, globalization, colonization of our, even our minds and our ideas. I I keep feeling that grandmother pull that somehow we broke that bond between grandmothers and children, because I mean, I'm a grandma and I'm still working full time. So my capacity to be where I want to be, which is just snuggling my grandchildren, that becomes difficult. So besides the alternative of, you know, everyone kind of cut back, which I, I find challenging. Is there any way to approach the sleeping issues with kids that isn't sleep training, but what are the ways of nurturing, supporting babies and meeting their needs without the parent going months without sleep? Yeah. So, you know, our baby is expecting 24 seven touch yeah. and maternal presence mm -hmm. or caregiver presence or else they get distressed and dysregulated. So figure out a way to safe bed share. Now, mm -hmm. It works instinctively for breastfeeding mothers. They the research shows they know where their baby is, and the baby can then just roll over or uh, in, um, access the breast at will, which is our heritage. And babies who are young need a lot of breast milk every few uh, you know minutes uh, because it's thin. It's not like predator milk, uh, like a lion or tiger's milk, because they have to leave the the young behind and go hunt. Our milk is thin, which is means it's intended to be ingested frequently. Uh, and it's full of uh, brain building ingredients. It's 80% alive. You know, formula is just great for an emergency food, but we really should be feeding our kids breast milk. And so that's another issue, right? We need milk sharing bank, uh, milk banks and uh, wet nurses and all sorts of things to provide those kinds of things to the young. So safe bed sharing, um, developing a routine at night uh, where uh, it's relaxing and for both of you, 
rocking in a rocking chair, really great for digestive uh, digestion as well, because it's stimulating the cilia in the digestive system, which the babies need, especially if they're not having breast milk or, or something else they're eating. <clears throat> and um, we, we can also have a, you know, familiar blanket, a familiar song, teach your child a song that's unique to them when they're in the womb even. And then you can use that to calm them down later and have these ways of, of getting into the mode of sleeping, carrying the baby around. The baby expects to sleep on you during the day in particular, right? And uh, so get in the habits of being tuned in and Babies sometimes cry because they haven't been touched enough. And sometimes they cry because they don't know how to stop crying. So you want to prevent the cry to begin with, which our ancestors and cousins and nomadic foragers do, because <clears throat> they somehow know that, you know, keep the baby calm, calm, no crying. Now we have the traumatized births issue. But <clears throat> how did we get to a place where we were taught that crying develops babies' lungs and teaches them independence and that, how did that narrative then come to be well they're supposed to have them calm there's those are two separate things so the um independence uh john watson american psychological association president wrote a book about for parents back in 1928 it was published he didn't know anything about child development but he wanted to make sure the parents would raise their kids so they would be cooperative college students in his classes. So <laughs> that's a long term. <laughs> well, he had a sense that early experience matters anyway. Uh, but he, you know, he said, pat them on the head once in a while, you know, hold them very, you know, stiffly and don't get too cuddly with them. Shake their hand at night. And <laughs> he's crazy. <My> goodness. <laughs> so independence is sort of there from, uh, at least in our uh, history coming from him and others um and what was the other piece dependence and oh crying yes. yeah so babies actually have to learn how to breathe and breastfeeding helps them do that they have to learn to shift between nose breathing and mouth breathing and when babies who uh who are not breastfed <clears throat> but and haven't learned to do that if they get congested they can die so if they cry and cry and cry, they get all congested, right? And then they can just dive SIDS because they haven't learned to shift back and forth. So that's one of the things that breast milk helps. It also helps the vagus nerve because it's right here and then all sorts of things breast milk does is breastfeeding does. So anyway, so lung development, um, there is some truth to the need to breathe and learn how to, but, and that, you know, at birth, they even slap babies. Mm -hmm. Because they cut the cord too soon, the the placenta has all sorts of oxygen for the baby that will last for like ten minutes, uh, keeping the baby fine without breathing. But uh, they cut the cord, and then the baby's not breathing, and they slap the baby, and then they, you know, they it, if they're going to breathe. Um, so there's all this thing about because of again misunderstanding baselines for what's normal and what's helpful and healthy. Uh, then you got all these. Uh, things that cascade the great uh, uh, movie to watch is the business of being born it shows you the cascade of of issues that happen with medicalized birth yeah so what is your wish dr narvaez in writing your book the evolved nest what are your hopes 
for change and parenting? Well, I, I uh, work at multiple levels. And the big picture is, is that our species is destroying the planet, the biosphere, uh, because we feel so disconnected and we're so hungry and hoarding and you want things because we have this big hole in our heart. So uh, the Evolved Nest is about reestablishing our pathway to wellness, which mm. is about, you know, being a part of the community and feeling, you know, safe, like we belong, connected. 24-7, especially important in babyhood, because that's when things get established, your personality and your capacities. So my uh, wish, of course, is to save the world. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> just a little wish. Yeah. <laughs> and then nestedness is really important for that. So what does that look like then in an ideal place? I'm thinking of my grandchildren when you know they start to make their own families and I'm going to be right in their face. What are, what are the stories that we're going, that I am going to be sharing with them to prepare them to make that shift in their own child rearing practices? Ah, well, go to evolvenest.org. We have a lot of things there for people, okay. but you're making me think that we should be writing children's books and other things, right? For <laughs> what the evolved nest looks like. There are maybe a couple that show animal nests, but they don't really go through the whole thing. Um, and the adults have gotten so disconnected, I think in part because they don't want to think about their own babyhood. You know, they've suppressed all that pain and to start to be open and responsive to their own baby. They have to, you know, tune into that. And so a lot of moms get depressed because they haven't worked through all those things. And of course, the separating of mom and baby at birth is going to uh, trigger depression. The mom thinks the baby died. Uh, so there are ways that, you know, adults are tuning in. If they tune into their baby to be present to baby, they will know that it's wrong. And I think a lot of parents know it's wrong to sleep train their children, but they do it anyway because, you know, they've taught the rules. You got to follow the rules to be a good person, to be a good parent. You got to keep up with everyone else. All that stuff that goes around in your head, those tapes or those uh, TikToks. <laughs> TikToks and Instagram. And I think there's also that badge of uh, honor, a little competition when you're a parent. It's like, oh, my child slept through the night at six. So mine slept through the night, you know. And then those parents whose child is still waking up at one or two years old, they feel shamed right by their cohort because they somehow failed. So it's normal. All of us don't sleep through the night. We all wake up all night long. We mm -hmm. just don't pay attention anymore. With babies, it's, you know, different cycles. And so you turn, you, you have to help them get back to sleep when they wake up. And, you know, we're, we're meant to sleep with other people throughout our lives. We're not supposed to be isolated in a room by ourselves or a bed by ourselves. That's crazy. Most, a lot of cultures think that's abuse. Mm. So we have to get back to understanding ourselves as social mammals. We need people. We, we go crazy without others. Uh, and we need the touching, the constant presence, our limbic. We need to resonate with loving beings around us. Mm. It makes me want to go back and get a do-over. My guest today has been Dr. Darsha Narvaez, who's Professor Emerita of Psychology for the University of Notre Dame. She is also the host of Evolvedness, but you're also part of other organizations, Kindred Media. Can you talk a little bit about other ways that people can get involved with your work? 
Yes. So Kindred World and Kindred Media, there's a lot of material there on consciousness, uh, conscious parenting and, and just getting back on the path to wellness, which is what is so important uh, for all of us. Uh, we all have some healing to, to be done. Uh, so there's a lot of things there. You can download free material. I write songs and I um, you can listen to those kids songs and, and we have films uh, breaking the cycle. Uh, Evolve Nest and Reimagining Humanity in 12 minutes. So <laughs> please look up our films, share everything widely. It's all for free. Uh, we'll have a class. Oh, we have a, a new uh, curriculum on the Evolve Nest that's self-directed kind of you can go through, but we'll also have a course on that. We're all direct and help you go through it in February, February, March. So that's Kindred World and Kindred Media. Are they two different? Kindred World is the overarching uh, nonprofit and Kendrick World's under that. So is the Evolved Nest. Fabulous. All right. My guest today, Dr. Darshan Narvaez, thank you for being here and thank you for tuning in this week. This has been a conversation with a reluctant therapist. You can find me through Instagram, Facebook, send me an email to Elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. If you'd like more information, please uh, listen to previous shows at kcbx.org or podcast our show and share it with your friends. As always, thank you for being a part of my community and listening and supporting Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. Night is coming now, have you heard? And through the town, they're spreading the word. So build a fire and settle down until I see you again. The night is coming now, have you heard? And through the town, they're spreading the word. So sleep by the river and move along until I see you again. Stay warm, sleep by the river. Stay warm till I see you again. Stay warm, build up a fire until I see you.